What we do is when you sign up as a customer, we basically say, here's all the campaigns we recommend. Here's how we format them in a recommended way. So it's kind of like bowling with the bumpers. Maybe you want to bounce off the left side or the right side. Either way, you're going to go and get hit some pins. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm here with Scott Hurth, CPO and co-founder at Chernji. Welcome, Scott. Great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and also the company. I've been in startups for over 15 years, mostly in consumer apps. I've been a founding team member, rocket ship participant. Probably the biggest app I've worked on was Tinder, where we were the, their first acquisition, and I helped build their subscription business there, build out their first revenue features. I got into personal crypto security, pioneered a personal key product, and now I'm at Churnkey, where we started this to make subscription businesses healthier, starting with voluntary churn mitigation. And then moving into involuntary churn products and all kinds of fun stuff beyond that. So that's my 15-year journey in 12 seconds or whatever. And in particular, the SaaS company that you guys have started, what is the sweet spot for you guys? What kind of segment of the marketing, for most part, you cover? We started, it's the classic, you know, start with what you know. And we spun Churnkey out as... It was initially an internal tool for a B2C SaaS company. And so that's been our, we're most comfortable. Our primary market is probably mid-market SaaS companies, but we appeal to any subscription business. So whether it's journalism, there's paid newsletters, all the way to subscription boxes. So we can help anyone with a recurring revenue model. Fantastic. And then when we had a quick chat before, one of the topics that when I asked you would be very passionate about it. And if you wanted to write a book about something, that would be one of the topics that you would pick was actually the kind of value of having a good product designed for the SaaS B2B. So I understandably enough, you have been in that phase of these startups and understanding the importance of how the product can impact a good SaaS business. And especially when you say a good product, it can be good design, it can be usability, it can be many things in that world. Can you elaborate a little bit about what, from your perspective, a good product for a SaaS company B2B means? It's funny, I mean, 
you're bringing me back. I did write a book on this with O'Reilly in 2016 called Designing Products People Love. And it went into the research of how does one find a problem to solve? How does one research that problem? And then how do you take that and really turn it into pixels and launch and go and back and iterate again? And under the topic of umbrella of B2B, design has really become a priority and something worthy of discussion in the past, I say, decade. You know, we see with Square, Slack, Shopify, Squarespace. I don't know why they're all, these are all S's. I'm trying to, And Basecamp, 37 Signals, where it doesn't necessarily have to be the most beautiful, handcrafted product. Design can mean design isn't just a layer of paint. It requires deep research and understanding of a problem which is a mirror to good design. Are you solving the pain? Are you doing it in a way that engenders trust, consistency, clarity? And those things, as we've seen with these big brands, Square, Slack, all the above, good design is a driver of word of mouth. So if you have a great experience and it feels polished and consistent and it gets the job done, you're going to tell people about it. And you're going to tell people about it like you would maybe you know, a more viral social product. So good design from the foundational aspects all the way to very human experiential aspects all throughout that process can be responsible for growth and this loop of research back into the product, which then makes happier customers. It's that virtuous cycle. Now, traditionally in a company, there have been a group of people in charge of building the product. And then some other people in charge of marketing the product, you know, as part of the design of the product, the way you design it, even in the very, very details, you are really targeting a different audience. What marketing is marketing a different segment of audience and users, then it might be a big problem because then you are not really getting the users who may love the product because the product is not meant for them. Having said that, when you go to a product-led growth schema, that you actually go to some people and then they introduce the product to other people that they know these people are the right audience for the product, that risk might be eliminated. So in the first kind of traditional model, marketing and product design and product in general need to be completely on the same page with any even teeny tiny kind of delta between them, it can be something that, you know, can impact the business in long run or short term or mid term in a very big way. So what's your take on that, you know, when we design the product and how you communicate with either market or in the more traditional way with the marketing team to make sure that you're fully aligned and the design is exactly for that segment? That's the classic, the target buyer, right, is different than the target end user and the target evangelist. And there can be all sorts of personas that get you from awareness to the sale to then usage and all of those layers. I think it's even more important to have an organization that has a unified sense of what is our brand design, product design, and you know, marketing and copywriting and all those aspects need to be 
whether virtually or physically, sitting in the same area. Because when there are inconsistencies in language and brand reflection, brand design, terminology, experiences, all those things break down trust over time. And operationally, internally, it becomes very difficult to, once those things become separated and they have different standards, even down to button sizes or what your primary CTA copywriting approach is, becomes so hard to unify that back over time. And at Casa, which was the personal Bitcoin security product, and it's a little bit different audience. These were, we initially targeted individuals who had large amounts of Bitcoin who were well off as it was and needed someone to trust to secure their Bitcoin. And so messaging from the sales process to transactional emails to the website copy to the product, if anything was off, that would instantly introduce a wedge of mistrust because they're skeptical to begin with, right? This target customer. And so if your logo looks weird in the email, they think they're being fished. If someone refers to the core product in a slightly different way on a call, they don't know if they're actually talking to a CASA representative. It may not be as dramatic in other industries. Certainly in the security industry, I could see that. But that general theme of unifying all these aspects into a cross-marketing and product and product design, if that's separated, just even on an operational level, gets so much easier to execute if there's a consistent pool of components and language, right? A shared language. And it's hard to cultivate that too. I mean, a massive design and marketing teams that are siloed, that is an unenviable task. And I've never been in an organization of that scale to pull that off. I think Adobe does a good job of this with Scott Belsky's leadership, but it's a very difficult task. When we are talking about SaaS, of course, SaaS as a software, as a service, meaning two parts, software part, service part. The software part takes off the attention, I think. What's your take on the other side, the complete picture that software as a service? So how do you interpret that part? At Churnkey, what we like to do is we have this mentality that if we can do it on your behalf and take some mental overhead or anxiety or just operational burden off your plate, you know, we have the power to do that. We're just going to go ahead and make it happen. We've never really had any situation where someone said, oh, I wish you didn't do that. It's always, of course, it's always in the spirit of moving the ball down the field or whatever sports analogy, but we're getting you to the goal of better retention, lower churn, happier customers. So if I see a typo and a cancel flow or misconfigured whatever, I just fix it. You know, we don't need the credit. I just want everything to work correctly. I think it has multiple benefits. And the first one is if you have primarily a self-serve product, but you're having to do certain things in the classic realm of startup land, the things that don't scale, and you're going above and beyond consistently, and you find yourself doing the same things, that is an opportunity maybe to automate some aspects, which enriches the self-serve side, which, you know, whether or not the customer is aware of it, they just see things getting done, right? So if automation can achieve the same goal at the same level as you doing it by hand, then I think that's a great opportunity to save you time internally. It's a teaching mechanism. The other benefit is it's magical on the customer side. And if they are hitting their goals and 
great news keeps flowing in and they don't really have to do anything about it, that's an incredible experience. They've outsourced. In some cases, you know, for example, we are basically an outsourced retention team. By not treating the service side of, of SaaS as a faux pas, it can really amplify your influence within your customer base. And I think we're going to see more of that as a trend over time. I've seen, for example, I forget the name of it, but there's a newsletter product that launched a service that will basically sell ads for you, put them into your newsletter, negotiate the rates, all that, and just the next time you send a newsletter out, you have ads on it and you're making money. So you just say, yes, I would like to experience that. Maybe there's a little bit of feedback, but boom, suddenly I'm making money next week. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Maybe enhanced by AI. I'm not sure. Bing is getting a little wild these days, but we'll see what happens. But I think it's a trend to look out for in SaaS. I don't know if you have been in any of these situations, but I have seen it quite a few times that has been a little bit challenging sometimes with regard to the design of the product that the kind of trade-off between the flexibility, power, and ease of use. And you are in a situation that you feel like users want more power or more flexibility and capability. But at the same time, if you give them all of that, then you are going to take away some of the easiness. And I have seen products that have gone far in one way or the other. So either probably they have given too much flexibility and then it's making it harder to work with that software or product. And I have seen cases that they are not giving me enough as a user to do what I want to do. So it's not creating the best experience. If you haven't encountered any of these situations, how do you normally decide I should go, am I at the right? level? Do I have the right balance or I should really go one way or the other to balance that? It's an exercise in knowing which customer you want to have, which customer best suited to. Do you have the confidence in your experience to have a strong opinion on a topic? So if someone says, I want a billion switches on these emails going out and I want to all these controls and whatever, you really need to drill down and ask why and get to the root of it. Is it just that someone's used to a competing product or they use some product in another industry they're really tied to? Do they want to feel busy? What's the human motivation for that? And then what's the outcome they want? And these are exercises I go through every time I face that conflict because we have a well-deserved confidence because of a lot of the battle scars we have, right? And Sometimes it takes some courage to say no. Sometimes it takes courage to say yes. That can open you up to exciting new ways of thinking that you may have not considered before. So maybe there's a benefit to opening up some controls in one area. And maybe it's a chance for you to simplify another aspect of the product. Maybe it's a sign of shifting customer tastes where they're worrying about different things. And your target customer is evolving and changing because it's always a moving target. And I'm trying to think of an example here. In our Dunning product, for example. So for those who aren't aware, failed payments, we recover them for you because of card failures or whatever reason, right? The bank just doesn't like your card. So it can be a tricky situation where 
I'm a customer of a company. I really want to pay for this product and the bank is getting in the way. So we'll try and resolve that for them. What we do is when you sign up as a customer, we basically say, here's all the campaigns we recommend. Here's how we format them in a recommended way. So it's kind of like bowling with the bumpers. Maybe you want to bounce off the left side or the right side. Either way, you're going to go and hit some pins. But then, you know, we do offer if you want to tweak the language in the email, if you want to put your logo in, these little things. And we're starting to get more requests of, well, can I send this email at this time and whatnot? This is an example of an ongoing struggle where our research and our confidence in not prescribing 100% of the solution, but 85 to 90% of it, maybe that chips away over time. Or maybe we go, as our research evolves and our customer evolves, maybe we just completely black box it. I don't know where we'll end up. One thing I love to do, though, is we have this little innovation called Dunning Offers. And there's this segment of people who, if their payment fails, and they're opening the campaigns to resolve their payment, they get to the form, they abandon. They just, I'm too busy. Even Apple, Google Pay, it's just too hard for me right now. Or maybe they forget about it. We do give this granular control, and you can, it's best deployed on a small scale, on a limited basis, where you can say, I get it. I know you're so busy. Your kids are yelling at you, and it's raining out, whatever. Just update your card. I'll give you either a discount off your current invoice and or a discount of future invoices. And so giving our customers a lot of power in granular controls and how to do that, how to word it, how to make it part of their brands has been really resonating. It hones in on something that's unique to our product, a very specific use case. And we don't know all the scenarios when that would be appropriate to deploy. So we can't prescribe our based on our research, what's the best time to do that or what the best offer is, right? So that maybe is an example of, maybe it's a little bit of an experiment. It's something new, see how people use it. And then we'll learn and maybe adapt to something more rigid down the road. Yeah, so it's more really be responsive in a way to the feedback and get the feedback, be responsive. So that way, be sensitive to the kind of inputs that you can receive and create that kind of feedback channel and input because that's the only way. Otherwise, it's very hard at the first attempt just to get everything right, almost impossible. We see now more SaaS companies, of course. If you look back at 10, 15 years ago or compared to today, you know, it has been a very fast growth ramp up. As a result, you see more products out there. And many of those companies, many of those SaaS products are, of course, big tech companies, application products, meaning that these are multi-billion dollar companies like Google and Facebook and others who are spending really billions of dollars in research and resources that they have and a lot of work they do around these kind of things. And then many of these SaaS companies and SaaS products, of course, are a smaller majority of them, small companies. How can the ecosystem help each other? Meaning that we are not just redundant everything we do and just go there and just say, hey, this is already done. And some people have spent tons of time to figure this out. And we don't need to start from a square one to get to that. So let's just go there and learn the lessons that, you know, exist out there. So how do you see the sense marketplace that started from nothing to this point in a decade or two at best? 
can really leverage that kind of knowledge and reusability of the information and experience in a way that it benefits customers essentially by getting better results faster. I think we can all demonstrate to each other and share best practices in how to conduct you know, specialized customer research in your vertical. And that's how you stand out against big tech because big tech is going to deploy. I remember the days of Facebook where they would release some minor feature and it blew away a whole host of startups, right? Or Apple introducing, I don't know, a screen recording app and there goes a whole indie ecosystem. But these are generic approaches to problems. They're like good enough solutions. So if you know your customer well enough, you're going to be able to identify the needs that extend beyond good enough. For example, this is near and dear to my heart because I made the classic mistake of in college starting a company that was centered towards student organizations and group management and all that. And why are there a million of those made every year? Who knows? But the good enough solution was an email listserv and that always won out. Now it's Facebook groups. I definitely have the scars on that one. I'm still talking about it 15 years later. But sharing how to uncover customer needs that are highly specialized, so then you establish the beachhead, then you find the path to the next customer segment we can appeal to. And by the time you have established deep relationships with various customer segments, then you're big enough to fend off big tech even more. I think the other aspect is we should all partner more. And, you know, there's a great company named, and he doesn't know this yet, but Daniel Zarek at Arrows, the URL is arrows.to, specializes in customer onboarding and, and activation for B2B companies. And they have this awesome HubSpot plugin where it's like, you know, going live on a product requires tons of buy-in from different parts of the organization and payment tasks and approvals and all these things that get lost in email or a spreadsheet or whatever. And I would love to partner with them because we're working on the same problem on different ends of the spectrum. So complementary partnerships, growing together, not sharing that SEO, domain authority, all those things can be pretty powerful over time. On a different topic, but related to SaaS, one of the things is about really the pricing. That was the other topic that I know that you have experienced quite a bit about that and I would like to get your input about what's your experience when a SaaS company needs to change the price, what is the best way to do it and how to do it, when decide to do it, these kind of price changes is going to happen. But at the same time, you know, you want to do it in a way that it's meaningful and it's understood well by all parties and especially customers can really can impact the retention that is very near and dear to the topic that you guys are experts on. So how do you really manage, how do you advise companies to do it, not to get any hit on the retention and the customer and everything that it goes well? If done tastefully and making it about the customer and not about you, you can actually engender more trust and loyalty by raising a price. And this is something that we've successfully done. We, full disclosure, had very naive notions of what our pricing should be early on. And we realized, look, to do what we need, we want to do, we're, to take this product to higher grounds, we have to raise prices. So we've been through this ringer ourselves. And there's a phenomenon too, where we did some research on when inflation really started kicking up. 
looking at different industries and how they handle cost of goods increases. And restaurants are extremely sensitive to cost of goods increases, and they'll raise prices immediately. And then we looked at SaaS companies, and that phenomenon, sometimes companies have the same pricing in place for half a decade. And we were wondering, why don't SaaS companies raise prices the same way that restaurants do? And of course, the inputs are different, but we charted out the real dollar value of what you're actually getting if you keep your price in place for five years or 10 years or even two years. And you're clearly making less over time. I mean, it's not rocket science, but it's a good reminder of the effect of inflation over time and it affects everyone. And so to raise prices effectively, you need to remind people what you've given them, what you continue to give them, what you will give them, and then say, look, to continue all this progress, we do have to raise prices. Here's your target price. We recommend gradually easing that price up over time. So giving three to six months to get used to it. And then always give them an out. Always give them a release valve to say, if this is really hard for you right now, or if you disagree with it or whatever, here's a direct line to the person who sent the email. And hopefully it's a personalized one from a real email address. Let's talk about it. And in our experience, we only really had one instance of, I'm going to leave if you raise your prices. But that led to a great conversation of this person had a mismatched perception of the value we were serving that we presented that we have shipped. And they weren't utilizing the whole suite of products that we offer, which you know was then an internal lesson of how do we uncover what we do in a more effective way. So I think there are an insane amount of benefits if you make it about your customer, though, and you extend your own runway, you improve your own cash flow. But yeah, it can be very nerve-wracking because it's uncomfortable. There are not a lot of great examples. You always hear about the bad ones. Interestingly enough, sometimes I have seen companies trying hard to innovate all the time on the product side while they could innovate much easier on the price and licensing side and benefit both customers and the business in a big way. And honestly, again, when somebody talks about innovation, we immediately think about most likely on the product side versus really in my experience, at least the companies that I have experienced, it has been much easier to innovate on the other side. And it has benefited actually in a much bigger way, the business and many times the customers. So definitely there are rooms on that part for SaaS companies to think about, first of all, how to innovate on both sides. And secondly, when you come up with these changes, what is the best way, as you said, to be very straightforward and very good communicator on the pricing part so the customers see themselves as fully educated on why this is happening and what are the kind of impact and probably what are the good things I can get out of this post. Right. And that can be daunting to do at scale. That can be intimidating and feel like a lot of work. And we've actually seen our customers use our cancel flows. You know, if there is pushback, if a new pricing rollout is botched or if it's the new values are incorrect and there's a big backlash, we've seen people use our cancel flows to kind of discover a new pricing equilibrium. So if cancellations increase, they're offering them, okay, well, what about this rate? Would you stay on for this rate? 
and you know, doing that at scale and A-B testing that is actually a really interesting exercise. I would like to ask Scott if you have any recommendation on any book that you read before and you liked it, maybe, you know, any publication we would recommend as well to the audience. Oh yeah, you can see behind me, my bookshelf is stacked to the gills. So I could probably talk about this for another hour. There's a book by 37 Signals, Jason Fried and DHH from 2006 called Getting Real. And I actually have their first book from 2004. It's out of print now. Defensive Design for the Web. I love their stuff. And it was the first time I had seen anyone behind a modern product and products I used put those ideas and principles and practical approaches into a book, into a guide. And what really affected me was designing for three states, ideal blank and error. It actually inspired me so much. I'd put it into my work, but I expanded upon it into, like I thought there were more states, loading and a partial data state. But that became a nucleus for my O'Reilly book. And I just expanded upon that. So that's one of my favorites, close to my heart. I'll go farther back in time to a book called Inside Intuit by Taylor and Schroeder. And it's basically the story of how modern product management was created. So for those who don't know, Scott Cook, the founder and CEO, he was actually a brand manager of Crisco at Procter & Gamble. And Procter & Gamble created this role that basically is the template for modern product management in software. And he took the brand manager role and applied it to software, bringing research in, this ethos of doing right by customers, pioneered you know, these follow me home research studies and customer advisory panels and rotating people through support to understand the real pains of customers. Because technology is not the end goal. Technology is just a means to improving someone's life. It's still a product. That's the goal of a product. The third one is a little different. It's Endurance by Alfred Lansing. And Ernest Shackleton led this expedition to the Arctic. They were stuck three years in ice in the Antarctic winter, and they just pulled off these amazing feats over and over and over again. And I know it's kind of a little cliche, but I learned the value of to have a high executing team, everybody needs a baseline of incredible competency and preparation and passion. And then everyone has a role to play. So there's examples over and over again of the cook did this, the dog guy did this, the hunters did this, and they had their routine and they showed up every day, but they were willing to adapt and grow as realities change. And then the value of like building in mental health time and play and rewards for achievement. So just a lot of stuff baked into that and just the incredible superhuman feat of surviving that long and that weather. So sorry to overload you on books. <laughs> no, fantastic. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Scott, again for joining us. It was a great discussion and I will definitely follow him and hopefully we will stay in touch and maybe we can have our chat soon. I'd love to. Thanks, Ramon. I uh, appreciate you. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve. 
the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.